This podcast is sponsored by Cloud Optimizer. As a business owner or IT manager, are your cloud investment costs going up and you don't know why? It's time for Cloud Optimizer. As you migrate your business to the cloud, what you're spending and why you're spending it can get a little hazy. But Cloud Optimizer clears up the mystery and puts the cloud to work for you. Cloud Optimizer starts by analyzing usage patterns, right-sizing resources, leveraging discounts you may not be aware of, implementing automation, and much more. And by reducing unnecessary expenses and maximizing performance, Cloud Optimizer guarantees you a savings of five times what you spend for their service. As you utilize cloud-based services more and more, you don't have to lose sight or control of your spend. You can stay agile, streamline your costs, and optimize your performance, plus save significant money with Cloud Optimizer. Make the cloud work for you with Cloud Optimizer. Get a free assessment and find out how much you can save by going to cloudoptimizer.com. Go to cloudoptimizer.com for your free assessment. That's cloudoptimizer.com. Hello, I'm Scott Sachman. I'm Evan Novi Williams, and you're listening to the Sportacast. Yeah, nothing, Evan. You you gave a little a little tease a few weeks ago that you were going to do something special. I keep waiting. Like there's a gleam in your eye, but there's nothing in your brain. Scott, I, I wanted understand. to get right into our guest. You're excited uh, really about the guest. Happy I get it. To be joined uh, today by Akshay Khanna, GM of StubHub's North American business. Akshay, thanks for joining us. Guys, thank you so much for having me. I honestly was really hoping to be able to do the This Is Sportacast or Welcome to the Sportacast, but. Uh, Evan Akshay, kind of, go, go, no, go. Akshay, just because we did it once doesn't mean you can't have your moment in the introduction. Oh my side. goodness! Go, go, go ahead, go ahead. Hi everyone, this is Akshay Khanna, and this is the Sportacast. There we go. I've been meaning give, to do. Are that we giving a grade, Beautiful. Evan? Are we giving a grade? Beautifully, yeah. I, I give that a B, B plus, A minus, huh? B plus. I thought he was going to give me an, a B minus. I'll take it. Uh, no, I, no, you're not right. much better. All right, I'm going to be kind then. Okay, go, Evan. <laughs> <laughs> so, Akshay, you've been, uh, I know you listen to the show. Scott and I don't disagree often, but one thing we have kind of disagreed on in the past few weeks is about the excitement that fans have and the demand to get back into stadiums. I would argue that that almost nobody in the country understands that topic better than than you, given your seat at StubHub. Give us a sense, 30,000-foot view, what you're seeing right now as restrictions around the country get lifted and arenas and stadiums start moving closer and closer to full capacity. So I think the headline is demand is starting to exceed 2019 levels. And so the post-pandemic, uh, if I can use that term, and you know, I try to use it with as much sensitivity as possible because we're not past the pandemic, certainly on a global scale, but not even really in the United States yet. But you are starting to see venues, you're starting to see restaurants, bars start to open up to, to, to patrons. And similarly, venues are starting to open up at 70% and 80% and in a lot of cases, 100% capacity. And particularly for events that are going to take place in the fall, and, and that's as early as the early fall, uh, the demand that we are seeing for those events exceeds what we saw in, in a pre-pandemic world. And I think that's a testament to uh, both the last year and a half and how important live events are in connecting individuals and how much they've been missed, uh, but also a renewed feeling of safety uh, through the vaccination process, through the data that's come out from vaccines showing, that, showing how successful they are in immunizing folks from serious health risks from COVID. And that's translating into big numbers at the box office 
for both events that are taking place now, whether that's Major League Baseball, the NBA, NHL, et cetera, or concerts that have been scheduled for the fall or the NFL and, and, and college football that are going to take place uh, starting in the early fall. All right. Actually, I don't remember what I did yesterday. Like I struggle with the, oh, but I think, and Evan's kind of smiling now. I, I think that means I was right. I think that's where I, like what I, <laughs> that demand that was a pent up demand that will exceed pre pandemic levels. I think that's what you heard. So Evan, if that is true, could you please utter those words? Cause I never hear them at home. So if you could <laughs> utter the words, Scott, you were right. I would really appreciate it. Scott. It appears uh, that you were correct. <laughs> oh, uh, actually you were like, he, how did he introduce you? Like perhaps no one understands this better than you. And now it appears as if I might. Be <laughs> I feel right. like, I feel, I feel like my, uh, my expertise is being doubted, but it's okay. I, I, no, I, no, no, I think no, it's no, complete it's, vindication it's, of a Sasha. <laughs> take. That's it what is I my, it is my, stubbornness uh when you think about i I will say this i think um in evan's defense this maybe wasn't as clear two months ago so if you had asked me in march hey what does demand look like for events starting in april starting in may i don't think i would have been able to give you as unequivocal an answer as we are now seeing and uh, i have to believe that a a significant if not the the largest portion of that is really how quickly this vaccine rollout has taken place. And and frankly, as, you know, as recently as February or March, I don't think people would have thought that as high a percentage of this country would be vaccinated as has been to date. And so certainly that demand and the rate of change for that demand has accelerated over the last 30, 45 days. Only those who are extremely prescient with two fingers on the pulse (laughs) of the industry would have two months ago proclaimed a, a voracious appetite for potential customers in venues. Only such a person, if one exists, <laughs> w- would have been right. I hear that we're both right, Scott. That's that's what I just took from that second thing. Uh, but Akshay, if you think kind of a little bit deeper into into the data, are there specific sports that are seeing higher demand than, than others? Are you seeing an age? I've seen a lot of polling that surprisingly to me tells me that Older sports fans are more excited to get back to stadiums than younger ones, even though maybe there's more risk for them. Are you seeing just in the type of events and the type of demographic of people that attend them? Are you seeing anything kind of specific or or unique or interesting in these early stages? I would start by saying that we are seeing increased demand versus pre-pandemic levels across the board. Uh, Now, that's a general statement. I think if you were to break down the demographics, uh, you would see, particularly for events, like I said, that are happening in the fall, there's a belief that we're going to be in an even better place in August and in September than we are today. And so there might be still some hesitation on the part of individuals to go to a crowded event today, even though they may be vaccinated, even though they may be sitting in a all-vaccinated section. Um, but there's clearly a belief, and, and, and that's translating into higher ticket sales for things like the NFL and college football, right? Those are actually really good barometers because those are going to be the first events that based on what we're hearing from the leagues and from um, the NCAA, those are going to be the first events that open at hundred percent capacity, as opposed to uh, the current slate of events that have sort of transitioned, right? Baseball, hockey, basketball have sort of transitioned and are constantly increasing capacity limits. And so I think those sports and and whether or not those stadiums are filled, which early indication for demand is showing that they're going to be filled and then some, 
are really going to be indicative of, of, of the coming months after that. But I would say overall, everything is up versus 2019 pre-pandemic levels. Does that include prices? What about pricing? When, you know, if we go back to the oldest trick in the book, supply and demand, you know, it's a basic business 101. What about pricing? So I think pricing is a little more nuanced, right? It really depends on the type of event. And so we've certainly seen higher prices for events that are in that are consistently in spectacularly high demand. So Tampa Bay Bucks at the New England Patriots is a great example, right? That's a one-off event. You get one chance to see Brady come back to, to Foxborough. Prices for that game are are certainly higher than they would have been, you know, a year and a half ago for any other Tampa Bay Bucks game. I so my say, sister, who's a season ticket holder, should she sell her tickets to that game to pay for the entire season? Is that can she cover the well, whole? Well, you know, cost? I, I can't I can't advise her one way or another. Um, <laughs> all I can say is, if she does choose to sell them, I hope she chooses to sell them on StubHub. <laughs> good, good one. I love that. Was really good. Well done. I, pr- I appreciate it. And so I would say, you know, pricing is a little bit more nuanced because here's another thing, right? Um, there are going to be events that are going to be uh, at increased capacity, but that still doesn't mean that they're going to be sold out. So there may be a baseball game that otherwise would have been at 50% capacity is now at 75% capacity. So from a supply and demand dynamics, right? The supply of tickets hasn't actually increased because it's not gone above the hundred percent. And so the price increase, if there is one may not actually be as, as significant. And so where I think you know, you're, where you're going to see price increases are, are kind of the, the, the top high demand events. But that's not a universal statement. It's not like everything is up in price um, versus 2019. Well, yeah, there were certain some venues and some teams where even during pandemic, uh, I will just be nice and say the TV shots of the crowd were no different or they were, <laughs> you know, indecipherable from a pre-pandemic crowd. So I would think that even though folks have been away from sports somewhat, if that demand did not exist before, perhaps you should not be banking on a, a big surge now. So that's a really interesting point. I agree to an extent, although I will say that anecdotally at least, and this is backed up a little bit in the data, but anecdotally at least, people have been so starved for the action of real life that people who would have previously said, I will never go for a blank event. I will never go for a blank team game. I will never go for a blank sports game are now saying, I am just so excited to get back to what life was like prior to March of 2020 that I would be willing to go to an event that I wouldn't previously have gone to. Now, it'll be interesting to see how long that sentiment lasts for. But I do believe there's going to be a little bit of a bump where people are just so excited to get back that they're going to go to events that they wouldn't previously have gone to. Even the Princeton lightweight football team might command a crowd. <laughs> I, I know whoa, you know the joke because you listen to the podcast. Even the never wins Princeton lightweight football team might command a few people you know, standing about the sideline. So to that point, actually, I mean, we talked about supply and demand for pricing. What about supply and demand for just sheer number of events? I mean, I've heard anecdotally that a number of teams are thinking about adding third-party events. They want to do more things in their building in, in off nights. I'm sure there's a backlog of concerts and tours and music festivals that want to get things in. Are we also facing just a kind of an unprecedented amount of things that people can go to in the next 18 months? And does that affect kind of the demand that you see? Yeah, that's a great question. I think 
where that is really going to start to impact the business is on the concert side, right? Because sporting events generally, with the exception of non-league events, so UFC, boxing, um, generally sporting events play according to schedule. And, and generally, the sporting events take place in buildings that are owned by the sports team owners. And so they're always going to get the priority, right? They're going to get the priority dates and, and that schedule is going to get priority. How those buildings then fit in the backlog of concerts, of um, monster truck races, of UFC fights, of boxing fights, things that are not scheduled according to a calendar, um, that's going to be a really interesting task. And it is both the most exciting time and the most nerve wracking time to run an arena for that reason. And you're going to see a lot of, you're going to see a lot more events taking place on, on what have historically been off days, right? And concert and, and venues and arenas undoubtedly are going to be working around the clock because the process of switching a venue around from a hockey game to a basketball game to a concert. I mean, this is a major production and, Typically, that takes a couple of days in between. A lot of that is going to have to speed up because there's such a backlog of events and there's certainly a backlog of demand, right? And I think we've talked about this in general terms of, hey, I haven't been to a sporting event or I haven't been to a concert in a year and a half. I will go to any concert. And there's certainly a group of people who fall into that category. I fall into that category of, I just want to be at a concert. I just want to be at a sporting event. It's it has historically played such a big part of my life and it is unthinkable to me that I, it's been 15 months um, without one. But then you've got fans of very specific bands and fans of very specific teams and they just want to go and see those individuals perform at the highest level. And therefore, you're going to have to also fit in each one of those concerts in those venues as well. And that's going to be a real challenge. Akshay, I keep asking owners and CEOs, executives of pro sports teams and arena operators, what is the long-lasting innovation that will stick with us coming out of this pandemic? Is there something in the ticketing world where you can say perhaps it was accelerated or we've looked at or we've tried that did not exist before, at least at scale, that you think will exist and will flourish post-pandemic? So I think the obvious one is there was a movement towards mobile ticketing even prior to the pandemic. And that was driven by the ubiquity of cell phones, smartphones in people's pockets. There are a significant number of venues that took advantage of the pandemic and of the lull to entirely move over to a mobile operation. And what that brings with it is faster presumably, assuming that the, the networks are working, faster entrance and egress, which is incredibly important during, particularly during a pandemic. The, the biggest touch. complaint, the biggest complaint at Barclays Center for years, and I'm only picking on them, and I'm not really picking on them, I'm just pointing out what the data said. The biggest complaint that customers had at Barclays Center was consistently in ingress, egress. Yep. And so I, I think you will find and, uh, you know, at some point, I highly recommend you guys get get John Abamondi on here and, and and ask him the tough questions. He's a friend, and uh, and obviously we had CEO. John on our live event. He was on one of our live events, but there we'll have go. him on again. I'm sure I'm sure he can speak to this, the Barclays Center piece specifically. But I will tell you that that is not surprising. As a you know, taking kind of the StubHub hat off and just putting on my someone who likes to attend live events hat on. 
I would say that's probably a pretty ubiquitous comment, right? Is that is that ingress and egress is one of the more challenging aspects. How do you get 20,000 people or 80,000 people into a building? And how you do that even more seamlessly with even less friction and even less contact and even less spent time spent in congregated areas is something that I have anecdotally heard almost every venue operator talk about how they've improved that process. And ticketing is one aspect of it, uh, but it is only one aspect of a broader um, of a broader part of the organization. And I think COVID has really hastened uh, innovations within speeding that process up. How about from the secondary market side? I know a lot of brokers had a really tough uh, last 18 months. A lot of people have gone out of business. How do you see you know the last 18 months having long-term effects on, on the resale side of, of StubHub's business and maybe the, the, the whole industry as a whole? And before you answer, let me just jump in. I want to piggyback that. This is why this show works, because I really wanted to ask a, a secondary market question. Uh, what, what is the change in, in sort of the whole business of like, teams wanting a bigger cut of the resale, and how do they get it? So let's start with that question uh, first. So Scott, with, with, with your question first, I would say it's a good question to ask um, team operators and team owners. In general, uh, you know, we, we, are, we have partnerships with the NFL. We have partnerships with NBA and NHL teams. We have partnerships with a number of college teams. We have partnerships with Major League Baseball. Um, you know, those are long negotiated, long standing partnerships that, that help both parties. And those have, I would say, have been immensely helpful to us. And I would like to believe to our partners in helping speed along the process of getting folks safely in and out of buildings, right? And working with teams to ensure that vaccinated only sections are labeled correctly. And our ticket buyers and our ticket sellers are getting all the information they need to adhere to the protocols that are so essential to getting people back in the building. Um, do we expect that relationship to change with our partners? No. Uh, again, we have longstanding partnerships with these leagues, teams, colleges, etc. Um, and we think those have only been strengthened through COVID, quite frankly. I think moments of duress and moments of stress, and frankly, this last year and a half for the ticketing industry has been has been absolutely awful, um, right? And not mincing any words, it's been a really tough time. Um, I think that has brought us closer to a number of our partners because we've had to work together in a way that maybe we wouldn't have had to do otherwise. Uh, Eben, to answer your question, I would say, again, this has been a really challenging time, the likes of which I hope I never have to see again for for the ticketing industry, for the live events industry, for a whole bunch of industries, right? And, and I think live events and ticketing were hit disproportionately hard. I think other than cruise lines, there probably wasn't another industry that was that was down year over year quite as much. And you know, Live Nation talks about this publicly in their in their public filings. Um, uh, having said that, I will say this industry has shown a remarkable amount of resilience. And the whole process mm. on the ticketing side has unwound and then rewound itself so well relative to i think most people's expectations that from a whether it's it's the 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 resellers or the marketplaces or anything else in the ticketing ecosystem i actually think most of those individuals and most of their companies were able to survive the pandemic not unscathed but certainly were able to survive and had to make some very difficult decisions in order to survive but i think it's really a it's a testament to this ecosystem and to 
a lot of these parties that previously had never worked together, choosing to work together to ensure that, that, that the Armageddon that many had predicted did not happen. Evan, you know what this all means? It just means more bar mitzvahs at Lambeau Field. <laughs> Sign me up. <laughs> For what role? <laughs> are, you, are you reading? Are you going to read the, scripture? What do you got? <laughs> the cantor? <laughs> no, well done. Well done. <laughs> that was Akshay Khanna, GM of StubHub's North American business. Akshay, again, thank you. Uh, thank you for joining us. Next time you join us, uh, I'll make sure that I am right about uh, the, the main topic. Something that about Scott something. and I are debating. <laughs> <laughs> thank you guys so much for having me. Pleasure was all mine. Uh, it's been a long time coming, so I was uh, excited to be here. Thanks again. Thanks, Akshay. I do appreciate it. All right, Scott. It's now just us, and let's move on to the, the final topic we're going to talk about today. A really great uh, suite of stories dropped this week on Sportico uh, by our colleague Kurt Badenhausen uh, about the highest paid athletes in the world. There is a million directions that we can go with this. The one thing I will say off the top, uh, I really hope that people read the story, look at the graphics around it. I think you can learn so much about the sports business world, uh, the way that salary gets paid, the way that endorsement gets paid, who gets them, why they get them. You can learn a lot about our industry just by checking out this list. Yeah, I'm with you, Evan. Like, I don't even know where to start, right? And, and I don't play the hype game, but, but Kurt's stuff is just so great and Lev's stuff is so great on the data viz. I will give two top line things and then you take it wherever you want to go. Uh, I'll say this, that in the list of the 100 highest earning this year, 10 sports were represented, 23 countries, $4.2 billion in total. The cutoff, like if you wanted to make top 100, you're at 100, you're Kyle Lowry of the Raptors, and that was 26 million bucks. So you had to bring in 26 million bucks. That's one I'll look at. And then the, the other part um, is just sort of by sport, where, where things were. 32 NFL players in the top 100. So football, 32. Basketball, just right there, 31, soccer, 16, tennis, six, golf, five, baseball, four, and then myriad others. So the NFL, even though it's a lot of nameless, faceless, helmet-wearing guys, still found a way to produce a third, almost a third of the group. So I will start at the top then, Scott. Conor McGregor, over the past 12 months, the highest paid athlete in the world, uh, $208 million dollars. The vast majority of that comes from endorsements, and, and the vast majority of those endorsements come for specifically from the Irish whiskey brand that he co-founded, uh, Proper 12, which was sold this year. I believe uh, Connor made about $170 million as part of that transaction. We talk all the time, Scott, about athletes who are thinking about their off-field businesses less in ter- their, their off-field endorsements less in terms of how much money is this company going to give me to endorse their product on TV on social media and more in terms of what equity can I get in this company so that when I do a good job promoting it and it's really successful, I share in the upside so much bigger. And Connor is a great example of that. This is a a single company there. Yeah. You hit it right on the head. I'm so glad you did it because you're starting to see more and more athletes. And this is where one of the data viz from Lev helped out a a lot. There's like this, this diagonal line. Those to the right, were making Mm. more from endorsements than salary. Those to the left, and people like McGregor, Federer, LeBron, Durant. And interestingly, and we'll talk about the gender divide here because there were only two women in the top 100, but Naomi Osaka took in 55.2 million bucks, a record for a female athlete in the year. And of the 55.2, how much was endorsement? 50, 50 versus 5.2 from playing tennis. So you're starting to see this growth 
of athletes who, who have these off-court, off-field, off-ice opportunities, and they are certainly taking advantage of it. And like you said, it's all about having equity. Don't just take the check in, in, in exchange for the ability to use your name. It was all about Conor McGregor having ownership. And by the way, yeah, it was a $170 million check this year, but he can get even more based on sales of was it proper number 12. Like That number can go way higher if the trajectory of sales stays. So he has a vested interest in, in sticking with that process. But Naomi Osaka, Serena, the only two women on the list. And Serena, again, another one of those salary versus endorsements, one and a half million bucks in salary, 34 million in endorsements, but only two women. I was very surprised that only two. I'm not sure what number wouldn't have surprised me, but two I thought was low. Yeah, and this, according to Kurt, Naomi had uh, her, her total in the last 12 months, 55 and a half million, the highest paid year that a female athlete has ever had from endorsements and uh, and winnings. Uh, going back to Scott, because I, I totally agree with you on, on, on this line in the data viz that shows who's making more from endorsements, who's making more from salary. For a long time, I feel like golf and tennis were really the only sports on the right side of that line. So those were the sports where despite the, the the purses for winning tournaments, not being incredibly high folks like Tiger Woods, like Roger Federer, like uh, Phil Mickelson always made a ton of money because the endorsement potential in those sports is, is really so high. We're starting to see NBA players cross that Rubicon a little bit. And going back to what we're talking about, about athletes who are kind of taking equity in their own business ventures. I would argue that NBA players are doing the best at that. Uh, LeBron James, Kevin Durant, Steph Curry, probably the three that jumped to my mind. All three of those guys now make more money off the court than they do on it. Uh, I think we're going to see as this trend continues, more athletes kind of crossing that barrier, uh, especially in specific sports, crossing that barrier from making a lot more on the court or on the field to suddenly having these off-court business opportunities that are so much bigger than the maximum they can get under salary caps in their own sport. Yeah, for sure. There's been a paradigm shift. When somebody like Andre Iguodala chooses to play in Golden State, not because of the roster, not because of the weather, not because of the ability to win, but because he wants to have a relationship with Joe Lacob, you know, who, who was partner at Kleiner Perkins, and he sees that can help me in my off-court endeavors, that tells you something. Uh, you and I met Jalen Brown, young guy for the Boston Celtics, at an Athletes VC conference. And just these guys, are they're thinking differently. It's no longer just about the sport. So the whole paradigm has shifted. And let me just round out the top five, just in case people are wondering, and then you can close it out any way you want. Lionel Messi, number two, 126 million. Ronaldo, 120 million. Number three, Dak Prescott, 108 million. And then LeBron at 101.8. So McGregor, Messi, Ronaldo, Prescott, LeBron. That's a pretty impressive top five, but go ahead and close it out any way you want. Yeah, so I'll go to the, the bottom of the top 100 list to kind of talk about the opposite, which is that there are a number of athletes. A lot of them are, I would say, not to be cruel, but fairly anonymous football players that are on this list just because of their on-field salary. Uh, they're offensive linemen who are extremely good at what they do. They get paid handsomely for it, but are not names or faces that really resonate in the consumer market. So you have people like Laramie Tunsil or uh, Taylor Decker uh, who end up on this list, Ooh. even though, ex exactly, that I think a lot of people wouldn't recognize them. So, so when I said at the top that, that I think you learn a lot about the way kind of money changes hands and who gets paid for what, 
in in the sports world. I think this this chart and this this story and 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 this graph of of athletes really shows that because again, for all the Roger Federer's and Tiger Woods who don't win, I mean, don't win all that much money, you know, relative to this list for for playing the sport that they play directly. Uh, there's also people on the opposite side who don't make that much money for endorsing products or you know for business ventures, but do get paid a whole lot of money for playing the sport they play directly. All right, it's time for me where I say the thing out loud that most people, I think, podcasts probably wouldn't say out loud when I explain what was going on in my brain that should like maybe people care about. But you said <laughs> oh, for dear. all the Roger Federer's <laughs> and Tiger Woods. In my head, I'm like, is it Woods or is it Woodses? <laughs> that's what that's what occupied my medulla for a good 15 seconds as you were speaking. Neither here nor there, but I just thought I'd share it. He Love is it. Eben Novi Williams on the Twitter at Novi underscore Williams. I am Scott Soshnick on Twitter at Soshnick. Our social media coordinator, Cora Veltman, would like me and Eben to tell you that you can follow the show at Sportacast, which is the hub of what will soon, very soon, I'm telling you, become the Sportico Podcast Network.